0: welcome to the garden church podcast the following message was previously recorded at the garden church in downtown long beach california okay so i'm just going to do this in 30 minutes or less I'm going to paint a picture of what it looks like to bring life to the city through compassion. Um, I want to give us a picture, an image, and a worldview. I believe that this is important for many reasons, but most importantly, again, for us to fulfill the calling that we have in our own unique lives, for us to fulfill our, our calling in the city as a church collectively, to be activated and awakened to our identities and callings, we need to grasp the significance of a small word, compassion. The word compassion in many ways is the summation of all of Jesus' teachings on God, on who God is, and uh, his ethics. Okay? Jesus is described in the Gospels as both having compassion and being compassionate, being moved with compassion. For Jesus, compassion was the central quality of God and the central moral quality of a life centered in God. It is if you want to know what it like looks like to, f- be, to fulfill uh, the kingdom of God in your life, to bring life in the kingdom, it's to live a life of compassion. I'm going to make that point today. That's it. And show you this worldview. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 6, verse 36. We're going to look at one verse. We're going to talk about this verse. And then we're going to go to De- Deuteronomy. And we're going to talk about that verse. And then we're going to end. Does that sound good? So for those of you that are wondering where I'm going, that's where I'm going. So when we get to Deuteronomy, you'll be excited, and then we'll go somewhere else from there. Okay, Luke six thirty six. It says this. If you have a Bible, if you're new to the Bible, open it up to the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. It's, uh, Luke is a, a gospel. It's a, a recording of Jesus' life. Um, so Luke says uh, that this is one of Jesus' teachings. Jesus says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So this is a command. And it's a summary statement of lots of Jesus' teachings, but it is a horrible translation. So I have to correct it. Um, The word that the English uses to uh, describe this passage is the word merciful, but unfortunately, mercy is not the best word to describe the Greek word that is here in our Greek text. So the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, The word mercy commonly implies uh, of an interaction between someone who is superior to you and in relation to your inferiority um, to to the person that's superior. So for example, uh, if I'm the employee and you're the boss and I show up late to work, the boss who has the superior position shows mercy to me, the employee, um, by extending me grace, by not by not marking up my my employee account or whatever it is, right? So you are usually, mercy is used for someone that's superior in an inferior place. So God, would you agree that God is merciful? God, who is our creator, shows mercy to his creation. But unfortunately, that's not the accurate description of what Jesus means here. See, the word compassion is is something else completely. And um, the word compassion should be used in this translation. Um, It's beyond mercy. So for Jesus... Compassion was not just simply an individual virtue, um, but a socio political paradigm expressing his alternative vision for human life in community. A vision of life or for life embodied in the movement that came into existence around him. So let me say that one more time, because that was quite complex. But compassion was not just a simple individual virtue. Rather, it was an alternative vision for human life in community. A vision for life embodied in the movement that came into existence around Jesus Christ. So what is compassion? What does it mean? So where we get the definition comes from a Hebrew word. And the word compassion in Hebrew um, comes from a singular noun, which actually is the word, and write this down because it's so important. What does compassion mean? Well, the Hebrew root is womb. So if we're taking, you know, the, the Hebrew word and applying it to what Jesus means, the Hebrew concept, the image, is a, a, def, a word like womb-ish. So the Hebrew definition is connected to understanding and the image of how a mother feels, feels towards their child in her womb. Think, I want you to think about any moms here. Anyone? Okay, there's a couple moms. First service, way more moms. Okay, so you'll just have to, you'll just have to take my word for it. But a, a mom feels a particular set of emotions and feelings towards their children, hopefully, um, that are in their womb. Their unborn child. And the word compassion is can be literally translated in Hebrew to womb-ish. And it, it's to be moved from within. The Greek is to say that there's a movement in your bowels. Not bowel movement, but you're moved deep with inside of you. So when we say compassion, or when Jesus says be compassionate, it, it's to say that it, it, God is like a mother who loves and feels for their child in her womb. God feels towards us the way a mom feels towards an unborn child. Are you with me? The summary of Jesus' teachings, the fulfillment of Christian life, to live in the kingdom economy, to live a life of compassion, is to feel and act as God feels and acts towards us. That's it. It's that simple. You are to feel and act as God feels, and acts. In this, you will, in another translation, be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. You will fulfill the teachings, the commands. To live a life of compassion is to feel as God feels and acts, act as God acts in a life-giving, nourishing way. And this word, compassion, is used in other places in the New Testament by other authors to uh, describe a somewhat more abstract command, which is to love. So in the Old Testament, the word compassion is used most of the time to describe what God is like, his quality and character, his nature. And so if we are to fulfill the teachings of Jesus, we are to become people of compassion. Are you with me? To feel like Jesus feels or like God does and act like God does. Are you with me? Compassion. That's the definition. So um, now we're going to move on. What does it look like to have a worldview, a compassionate worldview? How do we knowing the definition, now begin to interact in the world, to see the world through a compassionate lens. So I want to show you what much of the scripture talks about. So go to Deuteronomy. So take a hard left, if you're in a Bible, and go to Deuteronomy 15. So if you open up in the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, it's part of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Jewish community believed that the Torah was written to the people of Israel to keep the commands to live a godly life, a holy life. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy, and here's what you need to know. Um, Deuteronomy is written to the, the people of Israel during a season of, of wilderness where they were wandering in the, in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land. And the teachings of Deuteronomy is are basically these commands like, hey, remember where you came from so that when you go into the promised land, you won't forget who you are because you're going to go to a land full of milk and honey. There's going to be so much provision. You were once slaves. You've now lived in the desert. You're going to have abundance because remember who you are because in abundance and provision, um, prosperity breeds amnesia, right? Am I right? We get that. It's like all of a sudden, we don't have the job. We don't have enough for rent. We're praying like crazy for God. But then we get the job. We have enough for rent. And what happens to our spirituality? Okay. So, so we're in Deuteronomy. That's basically what Deuteronomy is in a nutshell. So here's what Deuteronomy says. You're welcome for that teaching. You don't have to go to seminary for that. Now I gave it to you. Deuteronomy 15. There's a lot more to that. That was a joke. Is it, am I really that bad today? It's okay. It's fine. Verse 1. At the end of every—you're going to say amen and hallelujah in just a moment. Trust me. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel all debts. Okay. This is how it's to be done, though. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Amen. Amen. You may require payment from a foreigner or first-time guests, but you must can't just. That was a joke. Where are you at? You must uh, requ- uh, cancel any debts uh, debt your fellow Israelites owes you. However, there need be no poor among you. There need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you. There's enough to go around for everyone. One of the dominant themes in all of the Scripture is God's provision for the poor through the people of God. There's plenty to go around. You just have to share it. Yes, there are people in your life that you will come around that don't have enough. And yes, you you think you don't have enough, but you do have enough, and you do have a little to share with those that don't have enough. That's the concept that, that Dr. Seuss would use to describe what it's like in the kingdom of God to share. But what, one of the central themes in all of the scripture is caring for the poor among you, caring for those in need. There will be people in your life that don't have enough. Some of you will have enough. So live in a way that those that have enough, share with those that don't have enough. It's that simple. All over the Old Testament, there are laws and, and commands and provisions for the poor and marginalized, the foreigner, the refugee, the widow, the orphan. It's basically this. If you have a land... You get one shot of going after all the produce on the land. If, something, if you don't collect something, if you miss a spot, um, you don't go a second time. You let the people of the land that don't have land come and glean from your field. In fact, leave the edges of your field for those that don't have enough. It's called gleaning rights. So some of you are like, well, I don't own land. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't glean. Um, Well, it's metaphoric. Now you have a house, a car, a refrigerator. You have your mind. You have relationships. You have access to knowledge. Some of you have smartphones and computers. You have so much stuff. Take inventory. What if you just were an open book? This is what God is after. This is a worldview, a paradigm. And in the, first, or in the ancient Near Eastern commands, in Deuteronomy, the expectation is that once a year we're going to cancel debts. We're not, going to make it, we're not going to create a burden for the poor and those that need to borrow. Are you with me? So it keeps going, verse 7. Check this out. And this is where the worldview comes in. If anyone, of, uh, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land, the Lord your God has given you, do not be, circle this, hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open handed and freely lend them what they need. Be careful not to harbor this, harbor this wicked thought. Here's the thought the seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. Don't think that, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. So it's about to be the seventh year. I better not lend this thing because I'll have to cancel his debt. Don't think that. And then it says this this is powerful they may then appeal, circle the word appeal, or a better translation is cry out, to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Can I get an amen? Someone has something, this is what's being taught. Someone has something and someone doesn't have enough and the person that doesn't have enough asks to borrow from someone that has enough and that person might think to themselves, the seventh year's coming, I better not lend this out to them because I'll have to get, cancel it and give it up. Are you with me? So the command is, don't even think like that. Don't be hard hearted. Because if you are hard-hearted and tight-fisted, they might appeal to the Lord. They might cry out to the Lord. Any of you have been in church long enough and read some of the Old Testament, what book has over and over again this phrase, hard-hearted? And he was hard-hearted. And he was hard-hearted. And they cried out. And the people cried out. And the people cried out. Anyone know? That's right. You were studying in youth group and... uh, kids ministry, Exodus is the dominant defining identity book in all of the Old Testament for the people of Israel. It's the, it's the beginning of the people of God. And in Deuteronomy, remember, the writer is trying to remind the people of God who they are and where they came from and who their God is. There are, there's this major character in the book of Exodus, and it begins with the people of God, the Israelites, um, enslaved to Egypt. And they are oppressed and forced to man labor, forced into harsh conditions by the Egyptians, but by one main character, his name is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh in Egypt works those people to build up more and more stuff, to to build cities for storehouses, where they collect more and more stuff. And as a result of the more and more stuff, he becomes stingy, hard-hearted, and he oppresses the people of Israel. God says says, uh, that his heart was hardened. And when you become stingy and hard-hearted. And when you collect more and more things, what you tend to do is build bigger fences, bigger walls, bigger storehouses, and then you get security, alarm systems. Then you get security guards. And eventually you build an army. And eventually other countries become threats to you. So you attack those countries. And have you seen ancient civilizations do this before? And it all starts with this idea of the way of Pharaoh which is about being hard-hearted. It's about living with power in a way that is not used to empower, but it's used to oppress, full of pride. And in Deuteronomy, there's a way of interacting in the world that brings up the empire spirit of Pharaoh. And obviously, we don't struggle as civilizations today of, of building up and collecting stuff and building armies and conquering people. Well, we don't do that today, right? We're going to talk about politics in a couple of weeks. Right before election, actually. We'll just talk about what Jesus thinks of Trump and Clinton. Um, but anyways, we'll get there when we get there. So if you're looking for a cozy church, Grace Brethren is right up the street. And LBCF it's right Just kidding. Um, they're going to preach the same message. Guaranteed. Their pastors are amazing. Um, so you won't like it there either. Uh, <laughs> so... The way of Pharaoh is one of hard-hearted oppression, power used for not to empower, but for self. And then um, there's this word that begins the story of Exodus. And it's so powerful because it's used to remind the people of Israel in Deuteronomy of what God is like. And it says, be careful that you're not hard-hearted because someone might appeal to the Lord. They might cry out. And the Israelites were the people in Exodus that cried out to the Lord with the oppression of Pharaoh going on. And God, in the book of Exodus, is the God who hears the cry of the oppressed. That is who our God is. He is a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, the marginalized, the orphan, the refugee, the widow, the homeless, the broken, those that don't have enough. The story in Exodus is that God is the liberator of the oppressed. And so we get to Deuteronomy, and we're going to have this, all this excess, all this stuff. And he says, don't be like Pharaoh, because you might become the oppressor. So how do we interact in this world through the lens of compassion? Jesus, or, and sorry, the, 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 the Deuteronomy teaching is basically saying, live your life in such a way that you don't become hard-hearted. And become like Pharaoh and store up and oppress and use power for yourself, but rather be open-handed and soft-hearted to your brothers and sisters. Are you with me? Are you with me? These, the implications for this are absolutely insane. And it goes into every aspect of your life. And this is how compassion becomes a worldview. In order for us to understand the implications today, something a teaching from Deuteronomy 15 and what it looks like today and how it lives up, I want to tell two stories. One about dried mangoes and the other about used cars. Okay? You with me? So can we go from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy to dried mangoes? So I went on a men's retreat, which wasn't a retreat. It was like... Hardcore camping, hiking, like roughing it, off-roading, shooting guns, eating nothing but meat and sausage and buffalo that you killed. So uh, I did this on my sabbatical, but we, we drove to, de- to Colorado. It was an 18-hour car ride. Um, with six guys, so there were five other dudes, all of us taller than six feet except for one guy. so I tell you that because you just need to know that's important for the story but so uh, it was a seven day journey and it was it was supposed to be a caravan to Colorado two cars, but one of the cars broke down halfway through and so six dudes were crammed inside of a forerunner with nothing but camping gear of sleeping bags and food and all the stuff that you have for a seven day excursion into the wild um, so imagine that and The best thing about it was that my honey, my love, my sugar mama, my baby, my wife, she packed my uh, snack bag. And she was very generous with my snacks. And uh, the other men did not have such a generous wife or something. But I had a very generous portion. But in the snack bag were Trader Joe's dried mangoes. Can I get an amen for that, please? Okay, so... Uh, I discovered it about three-quarters of the drive-in, which was really long, and I was starving and hungry. And and this is after we compiled into one car. And I look in the bag, and my thought was a wicked thought. (laughs) If I open this, I had it inside the bag. I was keeping it in the bag, the black backpack. If I open this, then I'm going to have to share it with everyone else. And I begin to calculate in my head. There aren't enough dried mangoes for this to last me the six days. And what happens when we develop that thought is we develop a mindset of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. And as, with that, as soon as I thought, I'm like, I'm going to put it away. And then the Lord said to me, I kid you not, in the front seat, three quarters of the drive, uh, he said, if you're like this with mangoes, what else will you be like this with? And then I had a long list. Um, so I pulled it out, and sure enough, the dried mangoes were gone immediately uh, with, with the six dudes that were in the car. But I realized that that thought is the, the way of Pharaoh, hard-hearted. That's, that's where the hard heart begins to develop over time, with dried mangoes. So that's your pastor, your lead pastor, had a wicked thought about dried mangoes gosh, and then I hear this story of what happened in the last month at our church or so while I was gone, that there is a young 20-something-year-old girl who has been here for two years and is going back home overseas, and there's a family that moved here of five with one car and live in a one-bedroom apartment and need a second car, and she was going to sell her car that she doesn't need because she's moving back to Hong Kong, but instead of selling the car, she gave the car to the family in need, You see, what starts as a thought with dried mangoes will never get to a car. But for some reason, this young girl who's 20-something and didn't go to seminary, doesn't study, doesn't lead a church, she's able to treat her car like I treat dried mangoes, even though that was a struggle. This is the way of compassion. That you become the kind of person that with a used car or a house or an extra bedroom or extra dollars or a computer or whatever it is in your life, in that moment, you just think there's plenty to go around because your God is not scarce. He gave you the land. There's plenty for everyone. There need be no needy among you, no poor among you. This is where it gets. Imagine us being marked by compassion. Imagine your life, not being marked by Twitter followers, how many people you brought to Jesus, how many friends you have, how much money you made, how many vacations you posted. Imagine if your heart, your goal was to be compassionate as God is compassionate, to treat the guy... Who's chronically homeless, and it's his fault because of drug addiction and alcoholism, because he's codependent on alcohol. He's burned every bridge. Imagine if your first thought wasn't, he deserves it, he should get a job, I'm working hard. Imagine if in that moment you were so moved within from within that your thought was, Lord Jesus, this is your little boy. How could I bring your love into this moment to remind him that he is human, that he deserves your love, and I can be a funnel of your generosity? I don't have any money. I gotta go to the store. Yes, I'll be late. That's compassion in a moment. Yeah, okay, Darren, I get it. And for some of you, that's way easier. The stranger's so easy. Imagine having compassion for your spouse for the hundredth time they did that one thing wrong after you nagged them for a hundred years to not do that one thing that way. For me, it's cleaning the sink after I do all the dishes. Apparently, you have to get all the stuff off of the top. You have to spray out the inside and make sure it goes down and wipe it down super clean. I just, I just don't do it, but my wife keeps telling me, but she is compassionate in those moments. Many of you, the people you need the most compassion for are the people closest to you. Because those that you have the most capacity to love have the most capacity to hurt you. Compassion. You see, here's one way that it looks like a worldview. It's, it's to keep the flow of heaven in your life moving. So the way I see generosity, the way I see the life of the kingdom is that you can be a funnel of God's love and generosity, of God's grace, of God's heavenly realm crashing into earth. As you walk into that Starbucks, as you walk into your coffee shop or your your office, as you go to your school, as you go to your dorm room, as you go to your roommates, as you go home to your spouse, as you walk your neighborhoods, there is this unlimited resource of heavenly capacity that God wants to just usher in through a smile, through a word of affirmation, through a presence of integrity, through a comment, through love, through a generous act of compassion, through a follow-up, through an email. God wants to just usher in his way of life so that the kingdom of God is extended on earth as it is in heaven. This is the generous flow. This is the way that we do it. It's to say, with our dried mangoes, there's plenty to go around because eventually it might be the car that he asks us to give up. And that's, what God's after. That's what it means. Do you see now the worldview? Do you see now how to interact with your spouse, with your brother, with your sister, with your mom, with your dad, with your kids in a generous, benevolent way because that's how God feels about you. Is there a better vision than this? No. If we embody this vision, it's a movement, unstoppable movement because no place is safe. If we have a vision for this gathering, it's static, it's not going anywhere. If we have a vision for your life in the city, it's going everywhere. Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. Be open handed and be soft hearted. I just want to pause here because I think if I were to diagnose our hearts, I would say most of us lean towards hard hearted. Would you agree? So here's, here's just a, a few things that I listed that would help self-diagnose your issues of hard-hearted syndrome. Um, this is from my life. So I'll hear, here are some questions I want to ask. If you want to you know the symptoms of a hard heart, do you have a, a critical spirit? Do you have a cynical spirit? Are you cynical? Are you unwilling to admit wrong when you are wrong? Are you regularly guarded against other people? Is it easy for you to find the faults in others? Is it easy for you to blame others? Do you forebode joy? Do you lack empathy for the suffering? Are you living constantly distracted? Do you call yourself numb to the world? Then you might be a person with hard heart. <laughs> it's like a doctor's commercial. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't in there. I just added that. Um, consult your doctors and see if soft heart is good for you. Um You finally laugh at that, really? (laughs) Pathetic. I think this morning, um, so in the midst of this, I paint a big picture. I give you an opportunity to recognize what Jesus is calling into you. I give you a worldview of how to operate in this world. It's going to look different for everyone. But now I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Um, We are conditioned with hard hearts. We are. And if you're willing to admit it, that's the beginning of seeing healing. Some of you have a hard heart because you've had, experienced so much pain in this world. And every time someone has hurt you, loved ones, relationships, people, missed expectation. Every time you've been hurt, that part of your heart has been calcified. A callus has grown over. And it becomes a little less impenetra- impenetrable because of it. And over time, that becomes the norm. You expect to be taken advantage of. You expect to be hurt. So you avoid vulnerability. You keep guarded. You avoid people coming into your life. Some of you displace what's happened in the world to God. And so as a result of being hurt by other people, you blame him and your heart has been hardened to his voice, to his spirit, to his life. And when you have blockage of pain, It's going to keep you from experiencing the God life. It's going to keep you from giving it away. There's a blockage in the flow because your heart is hurt and it hasn't been healed. And brothers and sisters, I have such good news. You don't have to leave here today with that pain. I believe God can do a work today to help bring healing to those areas of your heart. That's what the spirit comes to do. It says that he's a comforter, that Jesus is a healer. He's interested in those wounds that happened when you were a child that have marked your entire adult life. He wants to come into those memories and bring restoration and healing, so that you can be set free. Are you with me? Some of you have those things that you need to come forward for, and we're going to spend time praying that God would begin to work today, that you'd be set free from those pain. Is that good news? Some of you, um, it's ongoing sin. I'm just—it's so disobedience is going to block you from a compassionate lifestyle. When my wife are, and I are fighting, do you think that I'm walking around Starbucks? after a fight, wondering how I can bless God's children? Some of you think too kindly of me. No, I do not. I'm angry and resentful at my wife for all that she's done. So there are times where, and that's a petty sin, but there are other sins like ongoing lust and and, and sexual immorality and pride and lies and greed and gossip. We are living our lives literally disobedient to God, keeping the flow from moving forward. Some of you... to to experience this life, all you have to do is come into the arms of a benevolent God who literally is running after you to tell you how much he loves you, to wrap his arms around you and say, boy or girl, welcome home. That's all it takes is to turn. So this morning, repent. Recognize that, yes, you keep sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop it. Yes, you lied intentionally. Go apologize and make amends. Let's just cut it out, amen? Okay. Okay. I just realized what I was doing. I'm like, whoa, I'm going for it. Okay. <laughs> Pornography, cut it out. Alcoholism, cut it out. Drug addiction, cut it out. Amen. Come forward for that. We're just going to call you all up at once. So you don't have to be singled out. Last one. I'm having fun. This is good. I'm going to get pulled off the stage, though. Um. Last one. This is the biggest one. And this is what I wanted to share more than anything else. If you want a compassionate life, you need to um, forgive those that have hurt you. And there's a spirit of offense on our church, in our church. People, you, us, we, have held on to unforgiveness for far too long. There are people that have wronged you, and it wasn't your fault, and it was justifiably, you are justified in anger, justified in hurt, justified in rage, justified in disappointment, justified in all the emotions that come with that wrong, that, that break of trust, that abuse, whatever that is. And today, we're going to be set free from unforgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to jump back into these relationships, but if you want restoration with God, you want to live as a conduit of His love in this world of compassion, You have to release the the people that have harmed you the most. I just sense that today there are people here that need to release those that have caused so much damage in their life. It's time to set yourself free. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.